Very glad you guys are here. This is session three of our Half the Church group. And um, tonight is going to be a bit more laid back than what we've done over the past couple weeks. The past couple weeks have been super in-depth and lots of like nerding out on particular uh, Old Testament, New Testament grammar and all that sort of stuff. Tonight we're going to just mellow out a little bit. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking through the stories of women from the Old Testament who broke the mold when it comes to what women are allowed to do or not allowed to do, right? In, in particular, when we're thinking about these New Testament verses, these six or eight verses that we keep talking about, um, we, we tend to read everything that women are supposedly able to do through the lens of these few short sentences. And what I've uh, hopefully been communicating to you guys over the last few weeks is that women often do things that are far outside the scope of what we read in 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 14. And that happens Old Testament, it happens New Testament. And so how we interpret those verses, it needs to at least be informed by what happens in these other passages, both in the um, Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we're going to look through a bunch of examples tonight. It's going to be a lot of like overview of these different women and their stories and things like that. And what we're going to see is that there are in the Old Testament some very obvious and powerful examples of women who exercise religious authority, who exercise governmental authority, who exercise family and business leadership as well. And we're going to see in many of these cases, it is directly and explicitly exercised over men, groups of men, individual men, all of these different things. And so um, I think it's important that we know these stories, A, because these women are heroes of our faith. Yeah. Like they're every bit as important as the men that we know of or the New Testament women that we're familiar with. Um, we need to know their stories, tell their stories, celebrate their stories. When we get to Hebrews chapter number 11, that's often called the hall of faith. It's like this um, long chapter that just lists out all these incredible people from the Old Testament and what they did. And what you find in that passage is that there are plenty of women that are listed. And so uh, if their story was important to the writer of Hebrews, then it certainly should be important to us as well. Now, um, when we start this conversation, the first objection that we get from complementarians, and complementarians are people that believe that women are not authorized by scripture to preach, pastor, or lead, right? That's what that's how we've defined it. Um, and um, the first objection we get is, listen, all these stories are great. I love them. Yeah, go ladies from 5,000 years ago. However, these are Old Testament stories. And as Christians, we take the New Testament as normative, right? So it's like things may have happened in the Old Testament that we don't necessarily do in the New Testament. We don't sacrifice goats to cover for our sins or, you know, lambs or whatever, despite the fact that that's what the Old Testament calls for. As Christians, we obey the New Testament, not the Old Testament. But that's not precisely true if you really think about it. In our series we did at the beginning of the year, How Not to Read the Bible, we discussed the fact that um, just because something is in the Old Testament doesn't mean that it's not binding on Christians in the New Testament. There are, in fact, most of the laws of the Old Testament are not binding on us. Most of them are not. But like, let's consider some of the big 10. Thou shalt not murder. Well, just because we live under the covenant of grace in the New Testament church age doesn't mean that we're now free to go around murdering. In fact, Jesus kind of elevated um, our, our um, accountability to that statement when he said, hey, if you um, hate your brother or sister, then you've murdered them, right? So we're still accountable to what's going on in the Old Testament in certain places. How do we know which is which? It's very simple. If there's a rule that occurs in the Old Testament and it does not get repeated in the New Testament, you don't have to obey it. It's not for you. It's for a different people at a different time. So for example, there are Old Testament laws in the book of Leviticus that say you cannot wear clothing that has mixed fibers in it, right? Um, if you pop the, the label on the back of your shirt right now, it probably says 68% cotton, 14% spandex, and 2%, you know, something else, right? Well, according to the Old Testament, you are sinning by wearing that shirt. But that prohibition was never repeated in the New Testament. And so that's one of the ways that we know it's not really binding on us, okay? So um, when a complementarian might say, hey, this is Old Testament. These are women from the Old Testament. Times were different. The covenant was different. So they got to do things differently than women get to do today. Um, that is, I understand the sentiment, but it's not consistently true. Um, we want to look at whether or not the patterns and activities we see of women in the Old Testament 
are duplicated and repeated in the New Testament. Again, if a single command is repeated in the New, then it's still binding. If the behaviors, patterns, ministries of women from the Old Testament are also duplicated in the New, then we would say that they should be authorized. Women should be able to do these things in the New Testament. Even just talking about that out loud, mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't make practical sense. I mean, if there are all these crazy laws that, that had their own reasoning and mm-hmm. purpose mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, and then Jesus came to abolish that and give freedom mm-hmm. in Christ. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't make sense to say, no, but for women, for women, they used to be able to have more freedom, but now they don't. That's, yeah. that's contrary, and, and that doesn't make sense to what Jesus came to do. I, I agree with you, and we're actually going to end at that point um, with that very statement tonight. However, um, if I could play devil's advocate for a moment, um, when we say, well, Jesus just came to give grace and freedom, like we've already acknowledged the fact that like we're not free from every Old Testament law. Mm-hmm. So it's not as simple as saying Jesus came to give freedom, but... Um, we have to interpret the freedom that Jesus gives us in light of what both the Old and the New Testament say. But you're already ahead of me. So, um, okay. When we start telling the stories of these women, what we're going to discover is that um, many of them carry a specific title or there is a word that's used in the Bible to describe them that we are not super familiar with in the Western world in 2022, or at least the the white Western world, okay? Um, The title is prophetess. You're probably really familiar with the title of prophet. That occurs lots um, when it's applied to men in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in most evangelical churches in the Western world, we really don't have much room for prophetesses And we're a little iffy on the whole idea of what exactly is a prophet? Were they just from way back in the Old Testament times or were they in the new? Are they today? All those different things. So let's, um, before we get into these stories, let's talk a little bit about what these words actually mean. So your first blank there in the notes, a prophetess is simply a female prophet. That was a tough one. I know. Never would have guessed that on your own. A prophetess is just a female prophet prophet. Okay. So what we'll discover, and I'll reiterate this in a moment, is that the only difference between a prophet and a prophetess, scripturally speaking, is their gender. That's it. We're going to see that the roles that they uh, fulfilled, even the offices that they had in the Old Testament were exactly the same. Okay, so it's not like prophetess is like some lesser gift or lesser role. The men were the real ones and the women were kind of doing their thing with the ladies off in the back room of the church building. No, we're going to see that um, male prophets and female prophets absolutely. Hey, come on in. Uh, Male prophets and female prophets absolutely had the same role, responsibility and authority in their culture. Okay, so speaking very um, generally about prophets, if, if I say that person is a prophet. Uh, what does what do you or what does our culture normally think that means about the person? They're a prophet. We're talking bigger than church, like general, wide audience. What does a prophet do? Predicts the future, right? If we talk about the prophet Nostradamus, why do we talk about the prophet Nostradamus? Because he supposedly made a bunch of predictions about the future. Um, the world tends to use that word to mean somebody who foretells the things that are going to happen. And here's the deal. In both the Old and the New Testament, that is one thing that a prophet can do. The prophet can foretell the future. So Daniel in the Old Testament, he's got a book named after him. Uh, he was a prophet and he made several predictions about the future that came true. So if you went to, um, oh gosh, uh, Daniel 6, Daniel 5, he predicts the fall of the Babylonian Empire. And it happens exactly the way that he says that it will. Um, so yes, prophets, they do predict the future, but that's not the primary role of the prophet. It never has been. In fact, that occupies only the tiniest slice of what prophets do in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Rather than um, predicting the future, prophets mainly were tasked by God with speaking against evil in the present. That was their job. They spoke against evil. That's the next blank there in the notes. If there was some way in which people were committing injustice or evil against a person or a nation, if they had rebelled against God, then the prophet's job was to tell them, you're screwing up, 
you need to stop screwing up. Like that's really it. So we have this incredible example of this fourth telling role, right? Telling forth the truth um, that prophets did in 2 Samuel chapter number 12, who um, we read the story of David and how he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. Yeah. So um, when we're talking about prophet, prophetess, like one of my highest spiritual gifts is prophecy. And I grew up in a complementarian church. And so when I would ask after I would take a spiritual gifts quiz or whatever, and I'd be like, well, what does prophecy mean? I was told very specifically, it's you're you're able to look at a situation and call out the sin in that situation. And that made sense to me because I do have that ability. But what didn't happen in that time, and I've never sat and been like, I'm a prophetess. Like, listen to my future. Yeah. But like, We can add it to your business like, card. I don't mind. Like, but Email signature. I will say, we'll like, from the time that I was 14, 15 years old, I can recall moments where the Holy Spirit spoke to me in ways that are not really explainable. Like a vision. I could, like, something would come up to my mind the Holy Spirit would tell me, and then it would happen like almost instantly. Like I just knew or something was about to happen. And then a few months later it happened, but I knew about it ahead of time. And, and those things continually happen. The more that I lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit, but practically in an everyday situation, it looks more like I'm able to just call out the sin of the situation. Um, but I think that especially in complementarian churches, we do take away this the the supernatural side of it sure. a little bit. Um, and, and we take away that ability to proclaim the Holy Spirit speaking to us yeah. and saying, okay, you, there's no way you could see the future. Like right. that's not possible. Um, the Holy Spirit doesn't move like that today. That was just back in the Bible. And, and they dumb down that and say, well, prophesying is a spiritual gift, but it's only proclaiming sin. Yeah. And so I just want to speak that out so that we understand it is both. It, it is. It yeah, is yeah. The, the, the primary role is to speak for God. Almost always it's against sinfulness, evil, and injustice in the world. And then sometimes God will actually call people or give them the ability to call forth the future, to say this is what is going to happen um, according to the revelation in the word of God. So like I mentioned, there's this really great example in 2 Samuel chapter number 12. We have David, like David and Goliath. David, this is many years after he's fought Goliath. He has been crowned the king of Israel. And now that he's the king of Israel, he's living fat. He is enjoying the perks of being the king. All right. And so we read this story about how one day he's up on the rooftop. You know, they had flat roofs because they had no snow in the Middle East. And um, they would often use that as like a porch or a sunning deck or whatever. So the Bible tells us in, in uh, St. Samuel, in the time when the kings went to war. So David was still at the palace while all the kings were supposed to be out in battle. Okay. He's up on the rooftop and across the alley, he sees a lady bathing herself. And he says, yeah, I like her. Tell me about her. He finds out her name is Bathsheba. Her husband is fighting in his army right now. And he basically uses his authority, takes Bathsheba into his home, and he essentially rapes her is really what it comes down to. Okay, So David, because he's the king, he kind of feels like, hey, I'm getting away with this. In 2 Samuel chapter number 12, the prophet Nathan comes and very publicly, like in, in front of the entire court, he calls out King David for his sin and basically says, if you don't repent, God is going to seriously judge you. Now understand, Nathan was taking his life into his hands when he spoke up in front of the king um, and, and basically dressed him down in front of everybody, accused him of violating God's commands, of breaking the law, um, of being under judgment and condemnation. Like the, David could have been like, you know, who are you? And he could have off with his head right there in the moment. So Nathan was taking a really big risk. But what he was doing is speaking truth to power. He's telling the evil what they're doing is unjust. And um, that was a function of the prophet, maybe even the greatest function of the prophet. So I've got here in your notes um, a few facts about Old Testament prophets. Uh, primarily, we think about these in terms of men, but that we're going to see they're true of women as well. So first off, Old Testament prophets were commissioned by God. So like 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, go and speak against Nineveh, right? Jonah 1.1. Um, they were commissioned by God to, they were uh, commissioned in order to deliver a message of repentance or judgment. That's specifically what God tells Obadiah in the book bearing his name. Um, your job is to go and deliver this message of judgment because the people are evil and wicked. Sometimes the prophet's message would be like, this is your last chance. You better turn or you're going to burn. Or sometimes the prophet's message was like, you done had your last chance, guys. Um, the judgment's coming. You just need to know. God wants you to know so that when it happens, you know why it's happening, all right? Uh, the message that was delivered could either be to an individual, which is what happened in 1 Samuel 3, or it could be to entire nations like we see in the book of Nahum. Um, and then the last two are really important. Uh, we read in the Old Testament that God would withhold judgment when people, um, when they repented, I don't know what happened with that word there, when people respod, responded, I think is what it's supposed to say, but um, it is what it is. Um, God withheld judgment when people responded to a prophet's message. Um, this is what we read in the book of Hosea. God gives them an opportunity to repent. When they do, he withholds his judgment. And then um, we find that God would pronounce judgment or he would follow through with judgment when people rejected the um the prophet. And finally, rejecting a prophet was basically the same thing as rejecting God himself, because the prophet was authorized to speak on God's behalf. So when um, the people of Israel go to Samuel and they say, hey, you're getting old, you're going to die. We don't want another prophet to rule over us. We want a king like all the other nations have. Samuel's like, where did I go wrong? What's the matter with these people? I've been so good to them. And God says, don't worry, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Um, When people rejected the prophet's message, they were in fact rejecting God because the prophet was authorized by God to be the one who delivered the message. Again, I want all of that in the back of your mind because you're going to see these same things creep up throughout the stories that we talk about tonight. All right, let's go ahead and get into them. We'll start just by briefly mentioning Eve. Uh, Of course, her story is told in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because we spent almost the entirety of our last session talking about Eve, we're not going to do that again tonight. Um, If you missed last session, go back. You'll get to hear all sorts of stuff about the story of Adam and Eve, perhaps things, details in the creation and the curse story that you've never noticed before. But I'll just point out once again that Eve established from the beginning the equality of men and women in creation that men and women both equally bear the image of God. They were both in the garden before sin ever came along. They were given the exact same responsibility. They were both held equally accountable for the fact that they sinned throughout the Bible. Both of them are interchangeably singled out for their sin um, because they are both equally accountable. So even is, is an important kind of foundational story for why the things that we see happen later end up happening. So the first lady that we really want to spotlight tonight, her story is told, in Exodus 2, um, and then it's told all the way through Numbers 20. So she's kind of got a long story in the Bible. She is the older sister of Aaron and Moses, like the Red Sea Exodus Moses. Um, She is their older sister, and she's actually the one who was responsible for saving Moses when he was a little baby. You remember the story, making the little reed basket and putting him in the Nile River and floating him down to the Pharaoh's daughter. It was his older sister who was responsible for that. So do you guys happen to know her name off? And Miriam, right? Miriam, M-I-R-I-A-M. Very, very important woman in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, she is the first woman that's called a prophetess in the Bible. So lots of women have come before Miriam, but this is the first time the Bible actually uses that phrase, prophetess, female prophet, to describe a woman. In fact, why don't we go ahead and do this? Why don't we read Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 to 21. You can read it on your phone. I don't care what translation. We have a bunch of Bibles up here in the front seat if you'd prefer to do it that way. Somebody grab Exodus 15 and read verses 20 and 21 nice and loud for everyone, okay? Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with tremble and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Okay, so this particular couplet of verses happens immediately after 
Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea. The Israelites have crossed through on dry land. The Israelite, I mean, the Egyptian army actually has been wiped out by a miraculous intervention of God. And we read in Exodus 15 that Moses writes a song and then Miriam writes a song. The scripture says the prophet or the prophetess Miriam, uh, she grabs a timbrel, that's a tambourine. She just starts going to town, you know, <laughs> and she writes a song. And this song becomes something that the women sing throughout this passage. And then interestingly enough, this song is actually used in ongoing worship celebrations and services for the Israelites. So this was something that was used throughout the Israelites' recounting of the Exodus and the Red Sea miracle deliverance. Um, Her song in that moment is used moving forward. Um, We read a couple of other interesting things about her. So in Micah chapter number six, now again, we want to understand kind of how the Bible's laid out. Miriam's story happens in the book of Exodus uh, in the in the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, Micah is one of the last prophets that ever written. They're separated in time by like 1,500 years, like a long, long time between these two. However, God is speaking to the Israelites long in the future in Micah 6, 4, and through the prophet Micah, God says to the Israelites, haven't I always taken care of you guys? Like, why, are you, why do you keep turning your back? I've always been there for you. Did I not send you Moses Aaron and Miriam to lead you. So we we see here that God specifically said Miriam's job was to help lead the Israelites. Not just the women, but the Israelites, the men as well. I think that's really important. And then in um, Numbers chapter 12, there's a very sad kind of footnote to Miriam's story, okay? She spends a lot of time in the wilderness, like 40 years or nearly 40 years, leading alongside of her brothers. And um, one day, Moses decides that he is going to take a non-Israelite woman to be his wife. And that was a big no-no because the Israelites were only supposed to marry in their tribe and God didn't want them like chasing after foreign gods and all this stuff. And so um, Moses kind of, he went outside the family bounds, so to speak. And Aaron and Miriam both were like, who does he think he is? You know, he, he thinks he's so special because he's Moses and he can go off and marry anybody he wants to and blah, 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 blah. So they started speaking against him. And then the Bible tells us their conversation turns and they start saying things like, I mean, come on, doesn't God speak to us just like he speaks to them? Hasn't like God used us to lead and to reveal and to speak and all those different things? And so God actually kind of intervenes in that moment. And he's like, hey, you two need to be quiet because your brother Moses really is special. Um, I have spoken to you as prophets is what this verse says. He says, when I speak to a prophet, I speak through dreams and I speak through um visions. But when I talk to Moses, I speak face to face as a man speaks to another man. So what he's saying is like, yeah, you guys are prophets. And I have spoken to you through these indirect means of communication. But your brother Moses and I, we've chatted face to face. Now, um, a lot of times Miriam will get written off because her story ended kind of badly as a punishment for her um, rebellion against Moses' leadership. She's struck with leprosy. And she has leprosy actually only for a couple hours. Moses comes back, finds out she has leprosy. She confesses everything. Moses prays for her and God immediately heals her. But the point here is uh, Miriam will often get written off because it's like, see, she was like one of those women that didn't keep her place. And she started talking noise about her brother. And so God had to step in and punish him and all those things. But there's no hint in this story that God punished her for being a woman and leading. In fact, in Micah, we've already read, God sent her to lead. So the problem was that she had a sinful attitude. It was jealousy that was motivating what she was saying uh, in that particular passage, all right? There's one thing that I want to note in Exodus 15 before we move on to the next lady here. Um, Complementarians will often point out in the passage that Fanny read for us, um, the, the Bible is very specific that Miriam leads in song, but she doesn't lead all the Israelites. She only leads the women. Did you notice that? Um, it says, if you were to jump back to the beginning of Exodus 15, Moses led the Israelites in the song. There's no qualification whatsoever. Then in the latter part, when we're talking about Miriam, it says Miriam picked up a tambourine. She started dancing and she led all the women in song. So they would look at that and they would see there's proof or at least strong evidence that women are called to lead women. 
Men can lead men or women, but women are only supposed to lead other women, right? The, there are a few issues, though, with that particular um, interpretation, okay? Um, first, as we've already mentioned, that ignores the fact that her words became an inspired part of Scripture, Okay, so if her words, her song, that song of the sea she writes at the end of Exodus 15, that was only supposed to teach women and not men because that would violate God's created and intended order, then it probably shouldn't be included in scripture because I am encouraged and taught by those words in 2022. You see what I mean? Like if I have to go through scripture now and decide, was this written by a man or a woman? Because I can't really learn from it if it's written by a woman. A, I'm going to have a really hard time doing that. And B, it's actually going to be impossible because there's a lot of the scripture that we actually don't know who wrote it. We don't know who the author is of some of it. And it could be a woman. I don't necessarily think it is, but I can't say that it's not because we don't know who the author is, right? To me, this is like one of the strongest arguments to combat the idea that women, like men can't learn from women. Women have to be silent and can't teach men at all. And um, and it's just so obvious because, I mean, there's there's parts of things that Mary wrote that are in the Bible. And, and a song, like all of these things that women wrote that we read men read and preach from mm-hmm. and we're like oh no women have to be silent but you're but you're preaching a woman's words right, right. here right now like that yeah. doesn't make sense so, yeah. yeah and so that's part of what we're trying to show is that there is uh, there are logical inconsistencies with every position don't get me wrong I, I don't even pretend like my theologies don't have logical inconsistencies they do um But I think the logical inconsistencies with this particular approach to understanding the role of men and women are full, are are larger. I think they're greater. And so I'm going to call them out. Just like you guys have heard me over the last two weeks, I told you, hey, here's the best argument I've heard on this side. And I don't really have an answer for it. I'm sure there is one, but there you go. It is what it is. All right. Um, So it ignores the fact that these became a part of scripture. And two, as I mentioned, these lyrics became a part of the ongoing yearly celebrations of the Passover. So um, what that does in my mind is it raises two super important questions for us in 2022. Okay. The first has to do with worship. In 2022, again, we've talked about the fact that there are many stripes of complementarianism, but in most complementarian churches, even some of the stricter ones, women are allowed to lead in worship from the stage. Okay. Um, That's problematic if you take 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, literally. Because the literal understanding of the verse is that women are never allowed to exercise authority. They must be silent in the church. They cannot have any position which would allow them to instruct or teach men. All right? Worship is instruction, you guys. Um, That's part of the reason we do it. That's part of the reason we spend time investing in quality theological songs. And we we say no to certain songs because of the theology Mm -hmm. that's present therein and stuff like that. Um, So it seems very interesting to me that in these um, stricter complementarian churches, women are allowed to sing, but they're not allowed to teach. And, and there are, this question has been posed to complementarian pastors many, many times over. John MacArthur, John Piper, um, they, they've answered this question dozens and dozens of times. And what they say is singing worship is not as authoritative as teaching scripture or preaching a sermon, that these are two different categories of thing. One of them carries weight that the other one doesn't. Well, let me speak into that because worship is my jam. Let's go. So that that's like not acknowledging that music, let's just take worship out of it for a minute, that music doesn't impact your life in a mm-hmm. significant way. Mm-hmm. Like there's nobody in this room that music hasn't impacted you in some way and shape and form. And so then to add to that worship music, like, it's just being dismissive of what worship is yeah. altogether. Yeah. It is to instruct us, but not only that, the the music that has been a part of our culture and part of our life forever, it, it has a way and the cadence of music can reach into your soul so much deeper, so much more than just words being spoken from a platform. Well, we have a couple of examples of that, both from the life of David, same David we talked about earlier, 
Um, so uh, there was a king named Saul before David, and Saul gets into a real funk. He's got a depression. The Bible actually says he's suffering from demonic um, affliction. And David comes in, and um, the Bible says that as a musician, he plays the harp, and the harp music soothes Saul and drives away the evil spirit. So music has a power both in the physical realm and the spiritual realm that the scripture quite readily acknowledges. Okay, so that's number one. But even more directly than that, if we go to a verse that like almost nobody ever reads, First Chronicles chapter 25, verse 1, this is a, a, a retelling essentially of how David, once he was king, um, kind of formatted all the worship that happened in the Old Testament temple. Okay, listen to what it says. Again, First Chronicles chapter 25, verse 1. David, together with the commander of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Haman, Jeduthun, and for the ministry of prophesying. Wait, now watch this. He set aside these men for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the point of worship in the temple was that there would be musical accompaniment to the prophesying. The lyrics are prophecy. The calling forth of truth, calling people to return to God, speaking forth the the future that God wants Mm -hmm. to see or the reality that is that sometimes is hidden from our eyes. All of those aspects of prophecy, the scripture says that is precisely why we sing. That is a part of the theology of worship. So then for um, anyone, theologians, pastors, Christians to say, um, well, women are allowed to sing because singing isn't really teaching. You're right. It's not teaching. It's prophesying. That's what the scripture says. It is designed to encourage, to shape, to build up into the image of God. And so, A, I don't really think that holds a lot of water if we kind of look at how it says, uh, what it says Also think about like in our children's ministry, we teach children by song. Mm -hmm. Like if they're going to learn the books of the Bible, then they're going to learn it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like they're going to learn it through song so that they can memorize it. That is teaching and instructing them. Also, you can can say like there might have been history. Maybe you came from um, a very secular background, you didn't grow up in church, you had a completely different life before Jesus, and you would listen to different music. And I remember my mother telling me this when I was younger, I would turn on the radio and it would have some 70s song on it. And she was like, turn that off. I'm like, why? Dad listens to this. What's wrong? And she was like, no, it just has different memories for me where I was and what I was doing at that time. And I can recall that because I'm listening to that music. I'm just instantly taken back to that moment. And so if secular music can do that, worship music can do that, too. It can take you back to the moment where the Holy Spirit was moving in your life in a church service and a worship service, whatever it is. The Holy Spirit ministers through that and uses women to orchestrate that. Absolutely. So a couple of questions that I often have, and I'll leave now. And and, hey, I know most of you guys kind of come at this from the same position as Amber and I. Many of you may have a slightly different perspective, but we have a lot of people that are listening even to our podcast right now um, who... <clears throat> absolutely have a different perspective. And they are complementary because those are the churches we were raised in. That's the school that we went to. So my, my question then when we're talking about um, this idea of women singing, because that's a less authoritative role and all that, A, um, what do we do with female vocalists and instrumentalists? Like, how do we get around the idea that they're leading? And if your answer is, well, it's less authoritative, um, you've got to square that with first Chronicles 25, 1, and I don't think it does. But second, what do we do with songs that are written by females? So let's say that we're like hyper right wing and like very conservative and no women will be on our stage speaking into a microphone or singing. Thank you very much. However, a huge number of not just modern worship songs, but I'm talking like the old school hymns. What's up, Fanny Crosby? Um, these, These were written by women. So even if it's not women that are singing them, it's women that wrote them. How are they not teaching Mm -hmm. men? How are they not exercising authority? This does not hold logically. There's an issue there. Now, if you say it is what it is, I don't really care because 1 Timothy 2 says what it does and I'm fine with that. Okay, cool. That's fine. You can do that. But if you're trying to create a consistent theology, you have to answer these sorts of questions. Okay, one more. And we we really got to move on here. Um, okay, so I noted to you that Miriam's words in the Song of the Sea here, Exodus 15, um, they she led the women, yes, but they eventually became a part of Scripture, the inspired word of God. A related question is, 
basically every modern translation that exists in the world today is done by committee. In fact, it's a little dangerous when you have one like guy who's like, I'm going to I'm going to translate the entire New Testament because he doesn't have anybody checking his work there. You know, he's got one perspective. He speaks one language, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so translations are almost always done by a committee. And guess what? Basically, every modern translation has women on the committee. So um, how do we deal with the fact that women are deciding how Greek and Hebrew words are actually written in English? And then pastors are preaching messages based on the interpretive linguistic decisions that women made. How do we deal with that? Because I don't think you can argue that those women are not exercising some level of authority over what a pastor might say or preach, how he might phrase or frame or diagram a scripture for a sermon based on the words that she chose in order to do it. So again, I think there are all these layers in which women are exercising authority. We just don't acknowledge them because they're not quite as obvious, but you give it a little bit of thought and suddenly it does become really I have a obvious. cousin right so. now who's serving in Papua New Guinea. They just had a massive earthquake and it's a real mess out there, but she works for Wycliffe Translators translating in Papua New Guinea mm -hmm. for new translations. And um, I mean, that's like saying that her and many others that she works with, just because you're a woman, you can't translate the Bible now. Yeah. Like that's crazy. Yeah. And, and if you're sitting in here and you're like, I just don't believe that there would be any church who would stand on this. I want to give you one quick little story. <laughs> so the church that I grew up in, while I did grow up singing, I could stand on stage and I could I could sing a special. I couldn't lead worship and no way, shape or form or woman called pastors, but I could stand there and right after during the offering time, I could stand there and I could sing a special. Well, after I graduated, Daniel and I got married. My mother also got remarried and her husband had never really served in a church before, volunteered. And so they get married. She has always led in children's ministry, some kind of Sunday school class. So they co-lead one that is fifth grade boys and girls, and they're teaching fifth grade and boys and girls. One dad of one of the boys got upset that my mother was teaching his son. And so therefore they went to the leadership and the leadership made them split the class of a fifth grade boys and girls classroom. So now my stepdad, who has never really led in ministry before, was more trusted to teach this guy's son than my mother, who had been doing it for year, decades, decades yeah. already. And, and I just find that so crazy. But there are churches even today still who, oh, yeah. who stand firm on this and who are so confused in the ideals and twisting scripture and then teaching people to think, no, my son can't learn from a woman. Like this is still being taught today. Okay, um, let's keep moving on here. The next lady that we want to highlight is named Deborah. Deborah's story is told in Judges chapter number four and chapter number five. If somebody would um, grab a scripture and let's just read um, Judges four, one through nine. So the first nine verses, it's not as long as it sounds. That'll kind of set the stage for the things that we're going to talk about in regards to Deborah. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Yeah. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Hazor. Yep. Why did I pick the one with all these words? <laughs> <laughs> the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in that word. Mm -hmm. Then the people of Israel <laughs> cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of that guy, was judging Israel at, the t at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Sure. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of this other guy from that other place and said to him, he has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. 
And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road, nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to the glory for you, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Okay, so this is the first part of her story. It goes on. Um, basically, what I want you to recognize here is that Deborah is, first of all, called a prophetess, very specifically, just like Miriam. That title is given to her. And then she's also called a judge. That's your next blank, judge. So judge, um, we have the book of judges. And essentially, judges were the um, leaders of Israel. They were the political leaders, the military leaders, the spiritual leaders. They were all wrapped up into one. At this time, Israel was kind of like a very loose alliance of tribes. They were barely a nation in any way that we might understand it. And so there would be one person that God would kind of raise up to lead um, this very loose confederation of people. Deborah is the only female judge that's recorded, but she's very clearly recorded. There's no attempt whatsoever to minimize her story, to scale back her role or anything like that. Um, as with Miriam, Deborah ends up writing worship songs that become scripture. So all of Judges 5 is like this worship song that she writes, and now it's a forever part of our scripture. And I think like you can, you can argue that Deborah exercised more authority than any other woman in the Old Testament, except maybe for Eve. And that's just because like Eve was like responsible for everyone, like all of humanity at one point. Um, but Deborah, like she was over the entire nation of Israel. This would have been hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people um, at this time. And she was literally the one. She was the prime minister. She was the president. She was the leader of this entire nation. It's hard to understate just how important um, her story is. Now, uh, Deborah often comes up in these discussions because she's this a very clear example of a powerful woman leader, um, not just leading spiritually, but leading governmentally as well. Um, but from the flip side, she comes up because complementarians will often say, the only reason that Deborah was in leadership was because the man, Barack, didn't want to do what he was supposed to do. So you, you heard there, Aaron said, you know, um, Aaron read for us that Barack was supposed to go into battle and he said, I'll go, but only if you come with me, Deborah. Like whatever it was, he was like, nope, I'm not comfortable. I'm scared. I'm timid. I need you to go with me. And so complementarians will use this as a, a piece of evidence that God might, he might allow a woman to lead in exigent circumstances if there are no men that are willing to step up and lead. Like this is just one of those weird times in history in which there was no man clearly that was willing to step up and do what a man should have done, which is lead the country. And so God allowed a woman to do it, even though that wasn't really what he wanted. That's a very easy argument to rebut. Yeah. You have something to say, Sarah? But doesn't that take away from the all-knowing of, of God? Yes, come on. Yeah. If he's all powerful, couldn't he raise up a man if that's really what he needed to do? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think there's another couple of things that we need to like just very obviously recognize here. A, um, you need to pay attention to the order of what happens in Judges 4. It doesn't say God called Barak and he said, no, I need this lady. And so then she was given the role of prophetess and judge. Verse one says she was already a prophetess and she was already functioning as the ruler. She was the judge when Barak was called. Okay. So that's number one. But number two, even if we were to allow that argument, like, okay, this was just a, a woman stepping in when there was no man to do it. Can we just be real? Like for the vast majority of the church's history, the church has been majority female. Our church is majority female. Every church I've ever been a part of has been majority female. Um, sociologists have talked about this for centuries and millennia even. The church has always been more than 50% women. So if we're saying to ourselves, um, you know, God might let women lead if there are not men to step up and take charge. And it's very clear that men are not interested in stepping up and taking charge for one reason or another. Let's let the willing lead. Like if right. God can make this exception, when there are not men to lead, it seems like we are in one of those seasons when 60% of the global church is female and only 40% is male. There, se there should be at least the opportunity for that to happen if that's the standard that we're going to hold to. Okay, so Deborah's story goes on with the next lady we're going to talk about here. Um, her story's on the back of the page. A woman named JL. Anybody know JL? 
Woo! Yes, please. I just think it's so hilarious, sickeningly hilarious. You go back in Christian history, mm -hmm. um, and many of our churches, who are the women that went to the mission field? Oh, 100%. And, and 100%. I just did a lot of history of the Christian Missionary Alliance, did some work in seminary on my church background, mm -hmm. and the women could go, and they did everything and more than any man could do. And it, for me, it's not about tooting my horn. It's about... What is God's call on someone's heart? But they built churches that physically and spiritually. They they pastored. They were nurses. They were doctors. They were teachers. And many churches were hollering for men to go, mm -hmm. calling and calling and calling. And women went into terribly dangerous places. Yeah. And it was women, women, women. It and is. I think, yeah. I just think they have been. Um, put down in a way, in a very unfair way. Yes. It's it's the body of Christ in ministry together. Right. I don't care how you get someone to heaven, just get them. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I think that's fair. Exactly. You know, we're, you're a part, you were a part for many years of the CMA. Um, we have been a part for many years of the Southern Baptist Convention in the U.S. Um, obviously, that's the U.S. We're a different denomination up here in Canada. But anyway, um, the, the interesting thing is like in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is one of the most conservative and complementarian de de denominations around, their two major missions offerings throughout the year are named after women. There's the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. There's the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And these women were missionaries. They were church planters. They're responsible for the salvation of thousands of men and women. And the church like honors them. We're going to take up this offering in their name and continue the mantle of what they started back in the 1800s, but we're not going to let women do what they did back in the 1800s. That's bananas to me. I, again, this is where the disconnect comes in with what we say and then how we live it out. Okay. All right, JL's story is told at the end part of Judges chapter number four. So I'm going to give you a quick rundown. We're not going to read the whole thing, but basically what happens is Barak goes to war. Um, Deborah's kind of there. She's not on the battlefield. She doesn't have a sword, bow and arrow or anything, but she's nearby, okay? Um, Barak routes the other army and their king flees. And he runs by to a, a neighboring tent or a neighboring town rather, and he finds the tent of an Israelite family who had kind of been like, because they lived on the border between this enemy nation and the Israelites, they had been very diplomatic. We'll take care of you guys. We'll take care of you guys. Cause they're not like, we're not trying to get killed living in a border town here. So they were just kind of nice to everybody. So this enemy king is fleeing from Barak and he's like, oh, I know the people at that tent. They're nice. They'll look after me. So he shows up there and uh, the wife, JL, is there. The husband is not there because he was actually just killing the other guy's soldiers a little while ago. Anyway, he the king shows up. He says, JL, JL, you got to help me. Um, I need a place to crash. And she says, sure, my Lord, come in. She lets him sleep in the bed. She gives him some food and some water. And he's so zonked from the battle, he just crashes. So the Bible tells us, Judges chapter number four, while he's asleep, Jael grabs a tent peg and a hammer. And while he's asleep, she puts it up against his temple, smashes it in and kills the greatest king of the enemy nation. Wow. In Judges five, when we read this song that I told you that Deborah wrote, Jael is praised for what she did. Like, we're like, man, that's graphic. And I thought we're supposed to turn the other cheek and all this sort of stuff. But like the scripture actually says in Judges 5, JL is more blessed than any woman that lives in tents. May she and her family continue to be more blessed than any woman that lives in tents. So like, okay, she's not called a prophetess or anything like that. However, she certainly doesn't fit the female archetype that right. we have heard about in scripture. Okay. This is like, you know, if, if you're not allowed to exercise authority over a man, you're probably not allowed to drive a tent peg through his skull either. Um, but that's what she did. And she's commended for it in scripture. It's a really fascinating, fascinating story. Actually, if you guys don't know, Judges is probably the most interesting or one of the most interesting parts of the Old Testament. You need to read it because there's a bunch of good stories like that in there. Okay. Uh, moving on to Second Chronicles. Uh, your next blank is going to be Hulda. We're going to talk about Hulda. H-U-L-D-A-H. Hulda. And Hulda is very, very important. Okay. Um, in fact, why don't you go ahead, Amber, if you don't mind. Um, let's read her story. If you want to pull that up, 2 Chronicles 34. And it's verses 19 to 28. Okay. So um, we're going to see here. 
Huldah is another one of these women that is called a prophetess, okay? She is um, specifically given that t- title, Second Chronicles 34. Oh, 34. I think 34. 24. Nope. Um, and, and her story becomes very pivotal in Israel's history. She is one of the most important figures in, in the Old Testament timeline, and I, I, I can guarantee you, I have never, ever, ever heard a sermon about this woman, ever, Okay. When the king heard what was written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to Hil- Hilkiah. That guy, yeah. <laughs> Akalim, son of Ashpen. Akbor, son of Mike. This is why I gave it to her. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Just that guy and that guy Shepin and that guy. Okay. And, the court, and the court secretary and Isaiah, Isaiah, the king's personal advisor, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for all the remnant of Israel and Judah. Okay, pause right there. Let me give you just a brief bit of context before she shows you how this story resolves. The Israelites had been like captured and they had been exiled to a foreign country. They had, after a long period of time, been allowed to come back, rebuild, and they had started to develop their society again. However, because of the total destruction that had happened, the actual law, the Old Testament law, the first five books of Moses, people forgot about them. There was like a long section of Israel's history where the most important documents they ever had passed from memory. Nobody even knew that these, well, very few people even knew that these things were around. So in the middle of this kind of like very, um, this season in which they are very far from God, somebody rediscovers the first five books, the Torah of the Bible, and they start reading it. And the king is so upset at how far his country has drifted and how loosely or not at all, they're following the Old Testament law that God had commanded. He says in the passage Amber just read, go to the temple, grab the prophets, find out what we should do. Okay. Inquire about the words written in the scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger has been poured out on us because our ancestors have not obeyed the word of the Lord. We have not been doing everything in this scroll says we must do. So Hilga and the other men went to the new quarter of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Huldah. She was the wife of Shalom, Shalom son of Tivika, son of Horus, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. She said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken and go back and tell the man who sent you. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on the city and its people. All the curses written in the scroll that was read to the king of Judah will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods. And I am very angry with them for everything that they have done. My anger will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell them, tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against the city and its people. You humbled yourself yourself and tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. Okay. So there's a lot to point out here. A, Huldah keeps saying, this is the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking for God right Mm -hmm. now. That's what a prophet does. And that's what she's called. She is not only speaking for God, but she is speaking for God to a man in authority over a man. This is what you need to do in response to what God just told me to tell you. All right. So um, that's very important to note. Another thing to note here is that Huldah was a prophet at the temple at the exact same time as Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. All of these prophets were at the temple at the same time. This was like the dream team in Israel's history, all right? When the king had the chance to go to anybody and to say, what should we do? What do these words mean and how should we move forward? He could have gone to one of four men that have books in the Bible named after them, but instead he chose Huldah. What that means is he viewed her in some way that she was superior, that she had greater knowledge or wisdom. Um, That is very telling that he could have gone to any of these all-star prophets, but instead he went specifically uh, to Huldah. Can we 
just talk about something here for a Only second. Only if it's super fast. <laughs> we got 10 minutes and we got Maybe. a lot of ground. Oh, no. Okay. So I just want to dive in a little bit to the title prophetess okay. and just the weight, the weight of that title. Okay. Can we, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just, I just want to hear, I just want to hear what you have to say, because to me, this is the strongest argument, like talking about prophetess, prophets, the weight that that title carries, um, is the strongest argument against complementarian view as a whole. Okay. I'm talking about any title mm-hmm. that they would be against a woman having, because to me, the way that I'm reading this, like the only other people other than a prophet that I hear claiming this is the word of God is the Pope. Okay. <laughs> I, okay. Right? Well, like, um, c- claiming to receive revelation, I guess I understand what you're saying. Um, here's the thing. So we're going to finish out today this story of these Old Testament female heroes. Next week, we're going to do the exact same thing, but in the New Testament with a bunch of ladies that you may not be familiar with at all. Um, and the week after that, we are going to look at what the scripture has to say on the subject of offices in the New Testament. And by offices, I mean pastor, priest, elder, overseer, prophet. We're going to talk specifically about that. And so that might be the best time okay. to save that we'll discussion. Come back to it. I'm sorry. But remember all these things yes. that we're saying about this is, prophetism because yes. this is so heavy yeah. and it should feel heavy. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So Hold is very important. Um, again, she's one of the most critical characters in Israel's history. It was a lady that led to national reforms. And like without getting too deep in the timeline here, the decisions that Josiah, the king, made as a result of Huldah's uh, instructions actually led to the exact circumstances that were necessary for Jesus to come along. I can't. I don't have time to explain that tonight, but I'm telling you, the fact that Jesus came when he did in history is directly the result of Huldah's teaching in Second uh, Chronicles. 34. That's amazing. Okay. Uh, the next blank is Isaiah's wife. Isaiah's wife. She is called a prophetess. She's actually the last uh, woman in scripture in the Old Testament, forgive me, that's called the prophetess. Interestingly enough, um, this is the only thing that we know about Isaiah's wife, that she's a prophetess. We don't know what she said. We don't know anything. Okay. Um, It just says in Isaiah chapter number eight, um, Isaiah says, God gave me a word that I needed to deliver. The word involved me and my children, except I didn't have any children. So I went, I made love to my wife. We had a baby and then the vision came to pass. The prophecy came true, okay? Now, what's interesting is that in Isaiah chapter eight, he specifically says in the Hebrew and in most translations in English, I went into the prophetess, I knew her, made love to her, we had a baby, okay? He calls her the prophetess. But in some translations, they take that phrase out, like for instance, the NLT, which I preach from every single Sunday, they actually change that phrase, even though the Hebrew is very clear, I went to the prophetess, same word that's used for Miriam and Deborah and all these others, okay? Um, Instead, it says, I went to my wife, we made love and conceived a child. Okay. The, um, the reason for that is if you don't know any better and you just read Isaiah saying, so I went to the prophetess and we got busy and had a baby. You could be like, was this a temple prophetess? Like, did you sleep with some like Oracle or something, which was a very common thing, like in, in the ancient world. And so to clarify it, they say, well, this was his wife. And that's true. It is his wife. However, by simply replacing the word prophetess with wife, we have intentionally or unintentionally downgraded her role. Now she's just Isaiah's wife. Whereas in other translations and in the original language, she was a prophetess, which gives her more role, responsibility, and authority. Okay. Um, Yeah. You also need to know, and we we might dive into this a little bit more um, later, that every translation that exists in the world, um, it comes from a certain viewpoint, okay? So like anytime somebody translates the Bible from one language to another, there are always interpretive decisions that are made. And sometimes those interpretive decisions that are made can lean towards one theology over another, 
Okay. So for example, um, the, there's a version of the Bible. It's not in print anymore, but it was just 10 years ago called the TNIV. You probably heard of the NIV, the new international version. Then they had come up with the TNIV, today's new international version. And the reason that it existed was because the translation committee behind it said, we don't like the fact that there are so many gendered pronouns in the Bible, and we want to change those so that they more accurately reflect what the Greek text actually meant. So instead of saying, um, because uh, sin came through one man, death has passed to all mankind. Instead of using the word mankind, it would say to humanity or to humans, right? Because the word mankind there quite literally means everybody. We all die. We all get the same punishment. Um, And so they started to make those changes. Um, So that translation actually is designed to help you be a little more egalitarian or to see the role or the inclusion of women, I should say. Then on the flip side, there are very well-known and famous translations. For example, the ESV, which is one of the most common translations in the world, the English Standard Version. And that was literally, it was solely made to undo the translational choices that were made by the NIV and the TNIV. It is made by complementarians for complementarians. That's the whole point. There's an agenda behind it in the same way there's an agenda by the TNIV. TNIV is not a good translation, guys. It's not, especially when it comes to this particular issue. And if I can just be frank, the ESV is not a great translation either. It makes a lot of very bad choices when it comes to um, pronouns, the inclusion of women and things like that, because the men, and they actually do have only men on their translation committee, um, they believe that women don't have the opportunity or the authority to do these things. And so their translation has to show that or justify it. And so you need to know that. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll probably end up talking a little bit more about yeah, this. Yeah, we could easily spend a whole thing just talking about biased translations. What I do want us to walk out of here knowing is that like 95% of any translation yeah. oh, yeah, is going 100%. to be the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be pretty much the same. But there is, you as you're reading, you do need to be aware that some translations have a bias skewed towards one mm-hmm. way or another. Yep. Okay, um, let's blitz through these last ones real quick. Um, not because these women are unimportant, just because I can't stop talking. Um, so uh, Proverbs 31, we read about the wife of noble character. Again, this is a woman who defies um, what women historically have been allowed to do and not allowed to do. Go read um, the end part of Proverbs 31. And you're going to see that like, this was not like, she wasn't just a great homemaker. That wasn't the point. Um, She was an incredible businesswoman. The Bible talks about her having so much earnings that she's able to buy property on her own. In the ancient world, that was like an incredibly rare thing, but she was able to do it. The Bible says she goes out and inspects a field before she purchases it. Like she's hands-on. She's involved in the economy and all those different things. And so it's an example of a woman who is outside of the home, working, earning, that sort of thing. Ruth and Naomi, they have such a fascinating story. It's a lovely love story. Um, It really is. But frankly, if you just want to be objective about it, the way that these two women act um, at best can be described as bold and courageous and at worst, straight up manipulative. Like they manipulate this guy named Boaz so that he accepts Ruth to become his new wife. Now, it was a good thing. It's a right thing. God blessed it. Ruth becomes one of the great grandmothers of Jesus. Like all of this is wonderful. But like this is this is an example of women taking the leadership over men in romantic relationships. Okay, Um, they're taking the leadership. This is something that complementarians say women cannot do. Men must be in charge. You need to let us take the lead, that sort of thing. But at least in this one instance, we have women who are taking charge when it comes to pursuing romance. Esther's story is told in Esther 4 through 7. And of course, she took great risks um, to her own life to spare the Jewish people from genocide. She really put her neck out there. Um, She exercised some authority as the queen um, that, you know, like she probably shouldn't have, but God used it and worked it out well. And then God, like we could go on and on with other women. Like, so we have Sarah in the book of Genesis who actually instructs Abraham on what God wants him to do in regards to Hagar and Ishmael, his like concubine and illegitimate son. And Sarah's like, they got to go. You got to send them. 
And Abraham's like, no, that's my lady and my son. And God shows up and he's like, no, your wife is right. They got to go, right? So she was teaching Abraham what God wanted him to do. We've got Zipporah, who was the wife of Moses. And uh, Moses, who's leading the covenant people of God, he didn't um, circumcise his son. And she's like, what are you doing, homie? Like, you keep telling all these people that they have or circumcised their sons and you're not doing it. So she circumcises her own son um, as a way of like um, kind of showing Moses that he's not doing what she's rebuking her husband. We got Rahab who hid the spies. We've got the Shunammite woman who nobody ever talks about. She was a patron for the prophet Elisha. We've got Abigail who actually instructs King David in what's right and what he should be doing as the king. And he's so enamored with her wisdom that he eventually ends up marrying her um, because she's so intelligent and so wise. Um, there are all of these women that, again, they break the mold. They're not quiet. They're not silent. They're not submissive. They're not staying home with the kids. They're, they're doing all of these things that, like, we just don't even give them the opportunity to to be who they actually were. And I think that unfortunately causes us to narrow our sights down on just a couple of verses in the New Testament and ignore the wider counsel, the whole counsel of what God says. Amber brought this up at the beginning, and this is where I want to end it tonight. Um, even though these are Old Testament examples, if complementarians are right, if women cannot preach pastor or lead in the new covenant, they actually have less opportunities, less authority under the new covenant than they did under the old covenant. That's, that's what it teaches. Women were allowed to do things in the Old Testament they just cannot do today. So we're saying that Jesus came to set us free and that freedom meant more restrictions on you guys. That does not hold up. Now, there is one, one instance in which I think you could argue Jesus actually did bring in more restrictions. It's kind of a weird one. It's the subject of divorce. The Old Testament, you can kind of get a divorce for anything you wanted to. In the New Testament, Jesus said, God allowed that back then because of the hardness of your heart. And now God says, I'm going to give you one or two reasons that you could justify having a divorce beyond that. Uh, you need to work it out. That's God's will, all right? So I can't say that there is no circumstance in the new covenant in which Jesus did not strengthen or str make the, the rules stricter. There is at least one that I can think of. But if we look at the overall uh, momentum, direction that Jesus brought to the church and brought to humanity, it was breaking down walls. It was allowing people who were kept afar. We're going to see this. The temple was set up so that if you were a Gentile, you couldn't come in the front door. And if you were a woman, you couldn't go past the entryway. And if you were a man, you couldn't go past the middle room, only the priest. Jesus came to break all that up. Give us all equal access to God, to the gifts of God, to the ministry of God. We're going to talk a lot about that in the coming days, all right?